3: Hi, I'm Martha Stewart, and we're back with a new season of my
0: podcast. This season will be even more revealing and more personal, with more entrepreneurs, more live events, and more questions from you. I'm talking to my cosmetic dermatologist, Dr. Dan Belkin, about the secrets behind my skincare. Encore, Jane, about creating a billion-dollar startup. Walter Isaacson, about the geniuses who change the world. Listen and subscribe to the Martha Stewart podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: At that time I was 43 and I have no savings, I have student loan debt, I have credit card debt, I have a daughter and The answer to changing my life is not going to be getting yet another job. The answer is going to be me actually building something bigger than I have ever been a part of before. So
5: it was almost from a place of discomfort that I started my company. You just heard Sandra Velasquez, founder of Nopalera, a Mexican luxury bath and body brand. And if you're a fan of Shark Tank like I am, you probably saw her on a recent episode where she stoically and proudly stood her ground amongst the sharks. She had a dollar amount in mind and would not budge for anything else as far as an investment from the sharks was concerned. We talked to Sandra about why she decided to start her business in the first place in the middle of a pandemic, the strategies she implements to grow Nopalera, and much, much more. So let's just dive in. Let's go. Hi, Sandra. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Thanks for having me. Well, I am such a big fan of you, of your brand, of your efforts, of everything that you're representing for La Comunidad Latina, La Mujer, small businesses, entrepreneurs, all of that in a bag of Nopalera soap. Thank you so much. So Nopalera is a line of luxury body care with products such as cactus soap, botanical bar and exfoliants. And you have said that your love for your culture. Culture is the heart of Nopalera, so talk to us about that.
4: Yeah, well, you know, I used to be a professional musician, so I was the lead singer and the band leader of a, of a Latin alternative band called Pistolera for the majority of my adult uh, life, and I thought that I was put on Earth to, you know, share my cultural stories through music and it seems like a big jump, you know, being a musician to all of a sudden being an entrepreneur and owning a beauty brand seems, uh, you know, a little random, but actually the mission is the same, which is, you know, to celebrate and elevate our culture and tell our stories. I'm just doing it with a different paintbrush now, not doing it through music anymore. And uh, really for this brand, for Nopalera, what I wanted to do was I set out with a lot of intentionality from day zero to create a high-end Latina brand to disrupt the historically Eurocentric beauty shelves. You know, we, Latinos are 20% of the population, and yet I don't see any premium Latina brands on shelves. I see brands with French names, with Italian names. Um, And so it was really about positioning our culture as aspirational.
5: Why do you think that is so important? Because I'm totally right there with you. I feel like as Latinos, we're always positioned as like second class citizens. We never get the spotlight. We never get to be front and center. Right. So why was it important for you to really drive that point home? Well, I think first and foremost, as
4: being 20 percent of the population, um, it just makes no sense why we're not already there. Like, why aren't there already five brands like Nopalera? you know, like it doesn't really make any sense. So in business, you know, you often people often talk about the white space opportunity. You know, what is the white space? Where is there? What's missing? Right. And, and I really flipped that on its head and said, actually, the opportunity, it's the brown space opportunity. That's actually what's missing on shelves. And what I want to What I really want to do, because everything that I've ever done, even when I was a musician, always has like a political undertone. Right. This is Mm -hmm. not just about beauty products. This is not just about cleaning your skin. Right. My mission is not to help people get clean. Absolutely not. (laughs) Right. Do the products have to work? Yes. Do they have to be great? Yes. But the deeper mission here is to change the cultural perception of the value of Latino goods. Right. Because, you know, here in the United States, people have no problem paying five dollars for a croissant. But when a taco is five dollars, they're like, oh. Why is it so expensive, right? They want Latino products to be cheaper. And our, you know, the artistry and the artisans and the, the richness of, of Mexico and just all of Latin America is worthy of the same price tags. And that's really what we're also establishing, right? So when people come to me and say, your products are so expensive, I'm like, no, they're not. You would not say that to Chanel. You would not walk into Sephora
5: and ask for a discount. So why would you do that to us? I love it. I love it. I love that effort. A hundred percent. You started Nopalera in 2019 at 44 years old. Is that correct? So I had the idea in 2019. That's really when I started working on it. But I launched um, in on November 2nd, 2020.
4: So in the middle of the pandemic when I was 44.
5: Yes. <laughs> so before you launched Nopalera, you were a full-time musician or did you have another career? I
4: was a professional musician. I toured. I released several albums. I played on big stages. I've had my music and television shows, um, but it's New York. It's a very expensive place to live. And so I always had a job for health insurance. Um, and, so in the most recently, like my, the jobs that I was working before, you know, while I was launching Paleta, I was working, uh, in sales for other CPG brands. So I was, you know, in the trenches of New York grocery
5: by day. And then at home, you know, at night I would formulate and work on my brand and also on the weekends. So I'm 48, I'm going to be 49. And I also started my company in my mid forties, Contodo mm-hmm. Press, which is a children's book publishing company. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about that that i feel like there's this new wave of women in in their 40s that are pivoting and they're kind of reinventing themselves talk to us about that journey well for me my entry point into entrepreneurship was self responsibility and and what i
4: mean by that was in that summer of 2019 when i was Visiting my parents in San Diego, where I'm originally from, I was actually unemployed at the time. I had just um, left a job because there was a lot of problems. There was basically it was a coup, so I, I quit. Wow. I wasn't fired. I quit. So I, for the first time in my adult life, I was unemployed, and that was very scary because I looked at my life like here I am at that time. I was 43, and I have no savings. I have student loan debt. I have credit card debt. I have a daughter, and. The answer to changing my life is not going to be getting yet another job. The answer is going to be me actually building something bigger than I have ever been a part of before. So it was almost from a place of discomfort that I started my company because um, it was like, go big or go home, right? Like, this is it. I'm going to go big. I'm going to be bold about it. Some Mm -hmm. people are going to get mad about it. And um, but I really focusing on the opportunity and what was missing in the market and, and built for that. Right. So to me, I think I like to inspire people to live boldly because I'm a very courageous and bold person. And, um, there's no such thing as you're too old to do X, Y, Z. Um, and also, you know, COVID was the was like the great reset button for everyone because people took a look at their lives and they were like, wow, maybe this is a great opportunity. I don't really like my job. Let me go start a business or let me, you know, whatever they, it just, they were, everyone was stuck at home. Right. So
5: it gave people time to think for the first time in a long time. And I think a lot of women do want to be entrepreneurs, but sometimes they have a hard time. And this actually happened to me. I'm trying to figure out what is that product that I'm going to bring to life. So the concept of Nopalera, how was that birthed? Well, the concept was birthed by me. First of all, I was learning how to make soap that summer in 2019. As a hobby or like, is that something that you always like had a passion for? Or is it just like, Hey, let me take a fun class. It was really just kind of on a whim because again, I was unemployed,
4: right? So here I am with time on my hands and I'm at my parents' house in San Diego. And, um, it w- I was like, well, let's just, I told my daughter, I was like, this summer, we're just going to learn how to make stuff. We're going to make, you know, lotion bars. We're going to infuse oils with botanicals. And so I just kind of got into formulating, um, and, my first commitment was to myself to really learn how to formulate, to be an actual formulator. So I actually enrolled myself in formulation school, uh, Formula Botanica, which is based in the UK. And it's a very intensive, like year-long program. And I put that investment on my credit card because, again, remember, here I am unemployed with no money. How am I going to start a business, right? So that's another point that I want to make to people that you don't need to wait until you have all the money to have an idea or to begin. Because now that I'm in the middle of this seed fundraise, I'm, I'm raising... million. Um, and I'm almost done is that there's plenty of money in the world. You, if you don't have money and you don't know anybody with money, then you just need to go meet new people, go put yourself into new rooms where the money is. Because what I have learned through this process is that once you meet one person with money, you meet five people with money because all the people with the money hang out with each other and they know each other and they're all looking for a deal flow and where to invest their money. Um, so the idea was, you know, just going back to your question, was just I was learning how to make soap. I substituted aloe vera for nopal, and um, kind of the idea was born. And I realized that this plant that I had grown up with was going to be the key to the success of this brand because I knew that all Latinos had grown up with nopal. I mean, all Mexicans, right, had grown up with nopal. Right. And it would speak to them first. Um, And also it's an amazing plant, right? It's highly regenerative. It's sustainable. We can eat it. You can make textiles from it. You can, you know, cleanse your skin and hair. And I just didn't, I had like this aha moment, but also like, wow, I have known this plant my entire life and I've totally overlooked it. And I'm
5: going to build a high-end brand around it. The whole aesthetic, the branding, the bright colors, I think you got that right from the beginning. Talk to us about that process. Did you think about the branding at the same time that you were thinking of your company, of what like when you were starting, or how you came up with the name and the colors and the branding and all of that?
4: Yeah. So because I knew that I was going to be creating a beauty brand, I knew from just my time in in sales and just being a uh, you know working in the music industry that branding was going to make or break this brand. You mm-hmm. cannot enter into the beauty industry and have not good branding and, and expect that your ingredients are going to make you succeed. Absolutely not. Like beauty is an aspirational category. We as human beings are emotional creatures. We buy based off of emotion. You know, we are attracted to colors, then shapes and then text. So I knew, you know, that the branding was going to be critical to this brand's success, which it has been. Um, and so my first investment was in in for enrolling in formulation school, right. And learn how to formulate my second investment was in branding. So I called my friend, you know, Abby Hadigan, who is the designer behind this brand um, and told her what I was trying to build. And I created a whole presentation to present to her that really spelled out the mission of the brand, who the customer was, why it needed to exist, what our core values were. I really built the brand, right. I wrote it out. Like I was creating a religion, which I recommend to all founders, like really sit down, and build your brand, you know, because if you don't have that, your a logo is not going to save you. So, um, you know, I asked, again, I have no money right at this time. So I'm asking Abby Haddock my designer for a payment plan. Like, can, can we spread these payments out over like five months? Right. And she agreed, which obviously allowed me to be able to do this. So that was really working on the formulations and the branding both took a year. And so I worked on them concurrently.
5: And I read an article that says that 600 boutiques applied to sell your product. So does that mean that they're not that you have to approve them or they're already in these boutiques? Talk, talk to me about that.
4: Yeah. So I think it's like over now, maybe 700 boutiques have applied. We get inquiries every single day. I honestly um, stop looking at the emails. I, I, I filter them to a different folder because my head of sales um, takes care of that. So yes, people apply through our website and then uh, Priscilla, our, our wholesale manager, vets them, like make sure like they're not too close to an existing account we already have, that they carry brands that are aligned with Nopaleta, that it's really a good fit. Um, and then once she vets them and says yes, then she provides them, you know, the, the information to to purchase. Um, so we've turned down
5: like hundreds at this point. And then you obviously mentioned that your sales team funnels at, who is the first employee or contractor besides the branding that we already talked about that you hired for your team? Mm -hmm. Marketing.
4: So I started with, um, so Sam Gomez is our marketing manager. She started as a freelancer, right? I hired her for like five hours a week. Like, can you please help me with, you know, um, posting on Instagram or creating something? And then it turned into, um, you know, two hours or like, you know, 10 hours a week. And then it turned into like a monthly retainer. And then I was like, you know what, now she's just a full-time employee. She's a W-2 employee, you know, um, with a 401k and, um, you know, paid vacation. So that was really my first uh, hire because, you know, marketing is... At the, really what we're doing is we're running marketing companies, you know? Um, and so it's, to me, it's, um, it's also such a huge time suck to be creating content constantly when you're actually running a business. Because at that time I was also the formulator. I was also the production manager. I was made, I made the products myself for the first year. I had no time to be like dealing with, you know, Instagram.
5: So I see your Instagram is beautiful it's it's just aesthetically so beautiful like you said it's it's aspirational because you just look at it and immediately it draws you in with the colors and it's the photography do you have like biannually or like how how often do you have like branding sessions where you take pictures of your products and and all of that
4: So the way that we work is that we, we do quarterly planning. So we plan out the quarters all of, you know, so three months at a time, and then we have a brand photographer. So we'll sit out and we'll plan the quarter and then, you know, Sam will decide what pictures we need. And then we send those requests to Amanda Lopez, our photographer, and then she takes the pictures, sends them to us, and then they're all scheduled. Can you share how big your team is now? Yeah, I think we are. So not everyone is full time, but it's me, Sam, Edith, uh, Priscilla, and then... Sean part-time and then, you know, not counting my bookkeeper,
5: not counting, you know, but so we're really like five people. And you're running everything out of New York. Yes. Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Your product is, I believe in Nordstrom and in free people right? Yes. And in Credo Beauty and in Whole Foods, New York City. And how did that happen? Can you demystify? Because I think there's a lot of mystique around like, how do I get into Costco or Nordstrom, mm-hmm. etc. Sometimes I've heard that it's not as fancy as it sounds because there's a lot of upfront costs and then you, you know, you have to really sell the product and you have all that pressure. So can you kind of just walk us through what that process is like? Like, do they come to find you? Do you, you pitch to them? How does that happen?
4: Yeah, it happens. All of those ways. So there is no mm-hmm. one way, and you know, like the boutiques that we have right now, they all came to us, right? So that's one way. Um, and then Nordstrom was our first big retailer that we onboarded with uh, literally a year ago, and we launched. You know, part, it's part of this like Latinx collection that they brought in. Um, and so I used to be a sales rep, so I know what it's like to pitch right into sell into stores, and. It just goes back to, right, when people ask me, because a lot of founders, I mentor a lot of founders as well, and I have like an entrepreneurial newsletter where I'm always giving advice. People always want to know, like, how do I get into wholesale? And the first question is really like, can you afford to get into wholesale? And I'm not talking about upfront costs because there are no upfront costs when we're talking about, you know, you don't pay to get into Nordstrom. What I mean by can you afford to is like, are your margins strong enough to to like are you going to be profitable if you sell like to at a wholesale price because a lot of people don't do their margins correctly they don't calculate or they don't even know their margins or they don't calculate their cogs correctly or they're if they're making stuff at home then you're certainly not like you're certainly under pricing what your cogs really are because you're not really working with a co-packer you're not you're not paying production rent you're not paying staff right to create your product so it really it's about understanding like can you afford to like that's the first question because there's no point in, in getting into a store if you're going to make negative dollars from the, from the relationship. Right. And so, so number two, to answer your question, like, yes, yeah, sometimes we pitch and then sometimes people come to us like free people found us at a trade show. So that's how we got into that store. Credo, you know, um, Priscilla had been talking to them for a while and then I went through their, um, their Credo for change cohort and, um, and Nordstrom was like, we pitched to them. Right. And so there's different ways to get into retailers. There's not one way. And every buyer is on LinkedIn. So it's no longer mysterious about how to find people. Like if you can't find people, you're just not trying hard enough, to be honest with you. Right. Um, and it's not like the old days where no one knew who anyone was. And we were like working off of the yellow pages, right? Like everyone's on LinkedIn. Now every buyer's on LinkedIn. And the key thing is like, if you're going to go and present to a retailer, like make sure that you have a very, very, like you have clarity of brand. You understand your differentiation in the market. Um, like I just, I've, because I work with so many brands and because I've, I've been teaching a CPG class for the last three years, I just see what a lot of brand founders do wrong, which is talking about, you know, like how their ingredients are good. And and it's like, everyone's ingredients are good. That's not enough. You know, or like, they're, they're like, well, I'm vegan. Everyone's vegan now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like there's, there has to be a stronger, like a very, very strong brand story, mm-hmm. right? And you have to truly understand your category, right? Like I'm in the bath and body. Yes, it's beauty, but I'm in the ba- like the body care category subset of that. So really understanding who are my competitors on shelf? Who am I really competing with? I'm not competing with, you know, Mel Cosmetics. They're a cosmetics brand. Right, right. So really understanding the market, um, really doing your homework in advance, understanding your competitive shelf, um, making sure that you are priced correctly, you know, and then, you know, to your point, what why it's expensive to deal with retailers is the support that's required, right? So one of the meetings that I had today was with um, with an in store sales support. Uh, company, right? And they will go in, they'll, they have field teams all over the country and they go in, they merchandise your product, they get reorders, they educate the store staff. You know, this is like $20,000 a month, right? So, um, that's the, that's what it means. It like when people say it's expensive, it's that, right? It's the support you have to give free samples. You have to give free product to the store staff to educate them. You have to hire, a, a, you know, a merchandising team, right? Because
5: the store does not No one at the store knows what your brand is, you know? And then also, don't you have to have a lot of inventory on hand? So you have to put up the money for that inventory? Yes. So there's that, but it really depends on how many stores are you launching into, right? And
4: that's the conversation that you have with your buyer. Like, what is the forecast? What's the first purchase order going to look like? What do replenishment orders look like after that? So that's something that you should be prepared for because you asked in the first meeting.
5: So it shouldn't be a surprise. And you, you mentioned you have a co-packer, right? Mm-hmm. What is that for people that are listening and don't know what that is? And how long did it take for you to finally get a co-packer and how important and pivotal has that been for your business?
4: Yeah, so a co-packer, otherwise known as a contract manufacturer, otherwise known as a manufacturer, otherwise known as a factory, these are people that make products. Mm -hmm. So... I made the products myself for the first year only because I couldn't find a co-packer to take over my formulas. I couldn't find someone who would make my soaps the way that we make them in custom molds. It's very laborious. Um, Who could bake our our botanical bars, right? These are unique products with unique molds and shapes. Um, So it took me a long time to find someone. um, And it's – I can't even imagine – Trying to make my own products now. There's just absolutely no way. I mean, it was really difficult trying to scale and I was wearing hospital scrubs every day covered in oils. And everyone thinks it's so cute and so like great and like, you know, and everyone wanted to all the, you know, media wanted to come and film me like making my soap. I'm like, this is not what we want to glorify. Like we want to show that we can start businesses and outsource things to be made because that's how all beauty brands are made. No one's making their own products.
5: You know? (laughs) So you were working many hours a day until you got to the point where you can find a co-packer you were comfortable with. Like you were literally in, in your apartment, I'm assuming, or your house in New York making all of this? In the very beginning, I was in my house, but like by month three, I had found a production
4: space because I I grew my house like immediately. So I had to go find a a studio. um, and then I had to hire two assistants and train them. Um, and yeah, it's, so it's just very laborious
5: time for a short break. But when we come back, Sandra talks to us about hustle in a world turning more and more towards self-care is hustle a bad word. Well, She tells us. We'll be right back.
0: I don't understand what the big fat ones are. You don't put those inside of you, do you? I mean, you do? Yes.
2: This is a show about women.
1: I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway listening to the B-52s. And Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Hi, I'm John O'Brien, host of Money and Wealth on the Black Effect Podcast Network. I'm an entrepreneur and a businessman. Some would call a thought leader. Now, every Thursday, my newest venture is educating you on how to win financially. Even better, I'm going to teach it in a way that, well, you can understand. No unexplained theories, no mundane lessons, no using 20 words when two will do. I'm going to meet you where you are and take you where you need to be. I'm giving you straight talk, relatable stories, and life lessons through my own experiences and the lens of others. We're not just talking about why financial freedom is important. We're focusing on how you can achieve it too. We all might have different starting points and end goals, but as long as we have the desire to acquire financial freedom, it can be done from the streets to the suites. Listen to Money and Wealth with John Hope Bryant every Thursday on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: If you've been following the news, you know that from healthcare access to safe schools, LGBTQ plus rights are under attack. And it's about time queer and trans youth get the microphone and tell their stories
5: in their own words.
2: I'm Raquel Willis. Join me on my new podcast, Queer Chronicles, a show where LGBTQ plus folks tell their own stories in their own words. This season, teens will share all about growing up in political battleground states. I wish I could feel more comfortable in my own body here, but that's just not the case. And follow along as they discover what queer and trans liberation means to them. This is
5: not running away
2: from yourself
1: it's running into who you want to grow into
2: listen to queer chronicles on the iheart radio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your most fabulous shows
5: you were talking about how hard you were working and all of that and i feel like right now there's this battle between don't hustle like hustle is a bad word mm-hmm. and i'm not sure if it's a bad word because i'm hustling right now so does that mean that i'm doing something wrong i I do give myself plenty of time to work out, rest, go to sleep, but I do hustle. What is your take on this whole demonizing you know the girl boss, et cetera? I just feel like there's a happy medium. We can hustle, but we can rest as well. Well, I think that hustle is uh, fine
4: when it's when it's like a finite thing that you're doing, right? Because I knew when I was building my brand and I was still working for Van Leeuwen and Hybar and teaching and consulting at night, I was like, this is not sustainable, but I have to do it for now because it's the only way that I can launch this brand, right? Like I can't quit my job before I start selling product. so um, So I knew I was like, I just... Uh, it's going to take me a year. Right. I'm going to have to work my I'm going to have to burn both candles, you know, birth bone, both ends of the candle at the same time uh, for a year while I get this off the ground. And then hopefully I'll be able to quit. Right. So I think that if if you know that there's an end in mind, right, like that it's possible. But over a sustained period of time, I think what really the problem is, I don't think that the problem is hustling. I think that the problem is that people try to do everything themselves. I think that women especially are expected to, you know, we are expected to somehow take care of the house and also run the business and also cook and clean and raise the children while we're running businesses when really you should be outsourcing as much as possible so that you can focus because you cannot, it really depends on what you're trying to build. You know, some people... They want to do everything themselves and they don't want a co-packer to make their products. I'm like, okay, well then you're never going to scale. So let's just be realistic about what you're trying to build. Don't tell me that you want to get into Ulta, but you want to make your products yourself. It's not going to happen. So be very, again, deliberate and honest with yourself about what you want and what you're trying to build, what you're good at, what you're not good at and outsource, right? When I launch my brand, I'm outsourced cleaning my, I I got a cleaning lady. I start, I signed up for a meal delivery service and I, because I live in New York, I'm able to outsource my laundry. Like they pick it up from my porch, they deliver it the next day. And I'm still too busy. Right. right. <laughs> so I think that's really the thing, right? It's not about hustling. It's like, if you're hustling, why are you hustling? You know, Right. Why are you hustling? Are you doing too much? Are there things that other people could do? And, and let's talk about that instead, you know, cause I really think that that is really hard for people to let go and to everyone is scared of hiring people. They think they don't have the money to
5: hire people. I'm like, well, it actually works the other way around. You need to
4: hire the people so that you can make money.
5: Yes, 100%. I'm going through that right now with hiring and and all of that. So I completely agree with you on that one. I want to ask you, what do you think has been like the biggest learning lesson in your entrepreneurial journey or, or maybe like a mistake that you made? They say there's no such thing as a mistake because we always learn from them. But like, what's something that if you could have done differently, you would have done? I think... Um...
4: There's not many things that I would change because I really thought it out a lot before I launched. You know, I I, I plotted and planned and built for a year in silence before the world even knew what I was doing. And I really sat down and built the foundation of my brand. And I did that well, and that's why we are where we are today. It's absolutely because I invested in branding, and it took a year to do that. It's absolutely because I wrote down our company values and what we stood for and had a very clear picture of what we were trying to do, right? So that clarity... um, is why we 're here now right i'm not here because I make soap lots of there's plenty of soap in the world, like why my soap right it's about what it stands for it 's about how it looks it 's about how it makes people feel um, but I think that i i wish I could have. You know, found a co-packer sooner, but I mean, I was really trying. But it was also hard to look while I was working, right? So that's kind of the double-edged sword that I think a lot of people find themselves in: is they know they need help, but they don't even have time to find the help. They don't have time to sit down and write the job description because they're too much in it, right? So, um, I think maybe looking for a co-packer sooner. Um, and then I think the biggest learning that I have had. There's a couple. I'm just going to just highlight two. Number one, if you are trying to build a business, you need to hang out with other people that are doing the same thing. Um, So I, you know, as I mentioned, I was a professional musician. I know a lot of amazing musicians and a lot of them that have no money. And so that's not going to help me build my multi million dollar empire, right? And this is not to be mean. This is not to say right. that you should st- stop being friends with people, but you need to surround yourself. You need to find a new squad of people who are also trying to change their lives and also building something and also in the same boat as you. And ideally, a couple steps ahead of you, even revenue wise, so that you can learn um, and normalize what it's like to build. And so that's that's one thing that I did last year that has changed my life is I joined a mastermind and now I have a squad of women um, that were just, they're an amazing support network. So, um, and then I think the second thing is, you know, really being honest about your relationship with money and understanding that we all have a relationship with money, whether you think you do or you don't, you do. And understanding that truly understanding like in your DNA that there is a lot of money in the world and that, um, if it feels far away, it's just temporary. Like when I first started fundraising, you know, a year ago, I like, I mean, I've only been fundraising for three months, but when I first was thinking, Oh, I need money. It was a year ago. And I was, um, at actually I was at a retreat at my business coach's house. And, you know, she asked me, okay, so like, how much is it that you think, you need. Cause I was panicking. I was like, I don't think we're going to make it through the holiday. Like I don't have enough inventory. We're going to sell out, you know? Um, she's like, well, how much do you think you need? And I was like, I don't know, like a hundred thousand dollars. And she was like, that's it. <laughs> you know? Cause at the time a year ago, a hundred thousand dollars felt like a lot of money, right? you know? And, and then my friend that same trip, and this is, you know, I said like a year ago, um, she said, you know, you should really like, try to find 250000 And I was like, you're, you're right, you're right, right? But emotionally, it was difficult for me to like imagine trying to go find $250,000. And then I was like, you know what? I need 500000 And then it was like, no, I need a million. And now I'm in the middle of a 2 mil- $2.5 million raise. That's amazing. But the thing is that the only hurdle was in my mind, is my point.
5: Right, right. And I've heard that we all have kind of a money thermometer where we always mm-hmm. like, our bank account is always going to have... Whatever we feel is the comfort zone, whether it's five hundred dollars, mm-hmm. a thousand, ten thousand, twenty, and we're always mm-hmm. gonna keep it and maintain it at mm-hmm. that at that level because mm-hmm. it, our, our mind serves us as a thermometer. So yeah, I totally agree with you. Let's bring that thermometer all the way to the millions because mm-hmm. I completely believe in generation creating generational wealth, and that's how you really create power mm-hmm. um, and sustainable power through generations. You know, I know that we have to go soon. So I just wanted to quickly ask, how can people help with your fundraising or, or what stage are, are you at right now? Like, how is that going? Yeah.
4: So I set out to, um, when I started the raise in June, I was like, okay, I'm going to raise a million dollars. And when, when I had my first meeting with one of the VCs, they were like, is that enough? And I was like, probably not, <laughs> right? But the fact that they even asked me that, I think is just so telling, right? Because again, a million dollars to a lot of people sounds like an enormous amount of money, but when you actually sit down with a financial model and you plot out how much it's going to cost you to hire people, to make inventory, to market, to support, you see how quickly a million dollars goes, right? And people in the venture world, they, they know that a million dollars is not really a lot of money, right? Because you're thinking about a million dollars in your personal bank account. Right. That's different than a business bank account that has has like operating expenses, you know, or especially a product based business that is inventory heavy. So um, I didn't I never wanted to do a crowdfund because, you know, I love what like Little Libros did. Right. They they turned to the community and they raised like two million dollars from the community. And they're community owned, right? Which is a beautiful, beautiful thing. The reason I did not go that route is because one of the benefits of having institutional investors is that they're also bringing resources to the table, right? Like I need people with operational expertise, people with digital marketing expertise that have already built and scaled brands multiple times. So that is, you know, when you're looking for a partner, a financial partner, it needs to be more than the money. Because again, there's so much money in the world. Like what else are the money runs out? Then what? Right. So you need resources. Right. Um, And so that is why I chose to go the VC route. So I made a spreadsheet, right. I still have it that I track like all the VCs that I have reached out to that I've talked to. When did I meet with them? You know, I have my pitch deck that I worked on. I have a data room that has all of my company information. Um, And it was just it's a full-time job right like every day like who can i email who can i follow up with it's it's really exhausting so it was it's also difficult to fundraise in the summer because all the rich people go on vacation so people warned me about that but i did it anyway i was like well this is when i need to raise the money so it's going to happen in the summer oh well and you know just like when i launched in the pandemic people were like oh it's not a good time to start a business well i'm like oh well you know and people are like it's not a good time to raise money because the market is down i'm like oh well You know, like the life must go on. So, you know, um, I have a lead investor who is committed, you know, over a million dollars. And then
5: I have some angel investors also. So what do you do with the seed money with all of the the three million dollars? What do you use it for or what are you going to use it for? Yeah.
4: So it's always, you know, what what investors want to see is you building your team. Right. Because what you don't want to do is just like um, give like sell equity in your company for inventory. Right. So, you know, what you want to do is use credit cards, get a line of credit, right, for those like inventory needs and use the money to hire people, hire experts, build the team, build the infrastructure um, and and obviously marketing. Right. So
5: it's the three P's people, product and promotion. You had mentioned earlier that you mentor entrepreneurs. Is this a program that you offer offer or? Or is it just like people that you meet along the way that you take under your wing? So I have um, a
4: private entrepreneurial newsletter from my personal website, SandraVelazquez.com and people um, you know, there's like hundreds of founders that, that follow me there. And I, I send a weekly newsletter um, giving like actionable advice and sharing my journey transparently, just like I do through the No Palera podcast. I think it's really important for people to hear like what it's really like. And so I also was teaching live classes. Um, so I would like announce that to my mailing list, you know, and I was teaching like a branding workshop and also a margins class. Now I have them just evergreened on my website because I'm in the middle of a fundraise. I have no free time. So, um, and then, you know, over the summer, I also offered like free mentorship spots to people and it was just like on a first come first serve basis. So I did um, a lot of like one hour sessions with um, just founders that are on, on my mailing
5: list. So where could people find you, your products, you, your platform.
4: Yeah. So Nopalera is, you know, nopalera.co dot, for company, not .com. <laughs> um, it's also nopalera.co on Instagram and on TikTok. Um, and then I am personally, my personal account is on Instagram, official SLV. Those are my initials, Sandra Lily Velasquez. And um, my website, my personal website is com. So that's
5: pretty much everywhere. Of course, on LinkedIn as well. And you have a podcast and it's called La Nopalera. It's called the Nopalera podcast. This is a question I always ask all my guests. What is something you are reading, listening to, or using that you're obsessed with and that you would want to recommend? So
4: at the moment, I'm not reading anything, which I should be, but what I am obsessed with is, um, doing a morning meditation. Um, I, I really am committed to visualizing because I do believe that you have to first achieve it in your mind before you do it in the physical world. So every morning, um, I do a 15 minute meditation that is actually, it's on YouTube, I do uh, Dr. Joe Dispenza. Um, he has a 15 minute morning meditation. That's really all about visualizing who you are in the future and really connecting with what that feels like. Um, you know, like my business coach would say, like, be her now, you know, like, instead of saying like, Oh, I'm going to wait to, you know, when this happens to be happy, like feel it now, you know, and mm-hmm. so that's how you bring the future to you.
5: And now it, the last, last question. The name of the show is Latinas Take the Lead. How are you taking the lead? Well, I mean, No Pailera is
4: leading what I call the brown space opportunity in the bath and body category. You know, in business, we always talk about the white space opportunity, but I really think that it's the brown space opportunity. And so that's a, a, a term I coined and I'm using all the time. Um, and Really showing our community what is possible. I have a collection, like an actual growing collection of letters from founders and just people in the community thanking me for creating this brand and making, showing them what's possible uh, for, you know, that I've inspired them to start their own company. And to me, that is the ultimate reward because, you know, we, I had no one to look to. I, there was no other, um, you know, high end Latina brand in the space for me to be like, oh, wow, well, she did it. So I can, too. Like I was like, I'm going to be that person. And then, you know, people I'm going
5: to establish that and it's, we're going to normalize that. And then it's going to inspire other people to do the same. Well, thank you so much, Sandra, for your time. We know you're busy in the middle of fundraising. So I really appreciate the space that you're given in this um, podcast. Yes, my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Iber Reynoso signing off. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please like and subscribe. Follow us on Instagram at Latinas Take the Lead. And remember, don't be afraid to break barriers. It's about time. Latinas Take the Lead. Latinas Take the Lead is a production of the Seneca Woman Podcast Network and iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
0: You don't put those inside of you, do you?
5: This is a
1: show about women.
2: I mean, you do? Yes.
1: Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly-veiled aspirational nightmare.
3: Listen to Money and Wealth with John Hope Bryant every Thursday on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Martha Stewart, and we're back with a new season of
0: my podcast. This season will be even more revealing and more personal with more entrepreneurs, more live events. And more questions from you. I'm talking to my cosmetic dermatologist, Dr. Dan Belkin, about the secrets behind my skincare. Encore, Jane, about creating a billion-dollar startup. Walter Isaacson, about the geniuses who change the world. Listen and subscribe to the Martha Stewart Podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.